Hello fellow kids and welcome back to What is Politics and to the second installment in our critique of David Graeber and David Wengro's new book, The Dawn of Everything. Today we're going to read and critique the conclusion of the Sagesse de Candiaron preview chapter that Graeber and Wengro released in 2019, which in the book is called Wicked Liberty, the Indigenous Critique and the Myth of Progress. And while there are a few changes from the article to the book, the conclusion that we're going to read today is almost exactly the same. But first, something unexpected happened right after I recorded this episode. And that is the publication of the full book, The Dawn of Everything. My initial plan had been to critique some of the preview articles and chapters from Dawn of Everything that Graeber and Wengro had been putting out since 2015. And I was planning on getting all of this done before the book was published, but I didn't realize that the UK release date was three weeks before the US-Canada release date. So my initial plan got messed up, and the book is already out now when I thought it was going to be out for another three weeks. And of course, I got a hold of it, and I haven't had time to read the entire thing yet, but from what I have read, I can say two big things. Number one is this is a brilliant and wonderful read. It's full of so much fascinating and illuminating anthropological and historical information. It ties together so much loose gunk that's been floating out there in the ocean of anthropology and history about human origins. And to my great surprise, it's maybe my favorite David Graeber book of all. And I'm relieved because I really hate a lot of the stuff that's in some of those preview chapters that we're going to be reading. And I was expecting this to be my least favorite book of his. Now, I still disagree with a lot of what's in this book, but now I just respectfully disagree instead of thinking that they were doing something dishonest or incompetent. And I'll be explaining in this episode what I mean by this and why those preview articles of Dawn of Everything have been making a lot of anthropologists, particularly on the left, pretty pissed off. Which brings us to the second big thing that I wanted to say about the book. This book, as glorious and wonderful as it is, does not actually answer the big and hugely important questions that it sets out to answer at the beginning. How did we get stuck with these permanent, oppressive, hierarchical societies for the past however many thousands of years, and what can we do about it? The authors hazard a guess at the end of the book, but it's a really goofy guess, as you'll see when you read it. And the reason that they can't answer these questions is because of bad theory. The answers are right there under the author's noses, in the very text that they cite. They even manage to figure out some of the key ingredients, ability to escape, for example. But they can't get to the actual answers because they think that if you look for materialist explanations, then the answers that you'll find will be deterministic ones that will doom us to permanent hierarchy forever and ever, which is not true. And bad theory leads to bad practice, which is the whole point of this show. Like, they can't even figure out where male domination comes from, even though there's been some classic anthropology on that, which explains it pretty successfully. And you can go and compare my explanation for male dominance in episodes 7 and 7.1 with the goofy guess that they give at the end of the book about refugees and temples, if you want a good giggle. The reason that this book is such a glorious success, but then ends with such a flop, is the same reason that Occupy Wall Street was such a glorious success, and then ended in such a flop, which I'll talk about in a little video that's an outtake from this episode. But, at the end of the day, I'm actually pretty happy that Graeber and Wengro wrote such a wonderful book, but then punted on these big questions, because now my work is cut out for me. Graeber and Wengro put together an almost masterpiece, and now I get to put the crowning jewel on top. So subsequent to this episode, and I'm not exactly sure when, I'm going to answer the central questions of Dawn of Everything, which the authors punted on. And I'm going to answer these questions using the very texts that Graeber and Wengro themselves cite and discuss, and I'll be adding the missing ingredient of some basic ABC materialist analysis. And I already did a very rudimentary version of this in episode 7, which you can check out. Okay, so let's get back to the conclusion of The Wisdom of Kandiyarank slash Wicked Liberty, The Indigenous Critique and the Myth of Progress. And please keep in mind that the rest of this episode, besides this intro, was recorded before the book was released. So while everything I'm saying is still accurate, in Dawn of Everything, after a career of ignoring 50 years of hunter-gatherer research, Graeber and Wengro finally do talk a little bit about actual egalitarian societies, and they do so honestly. So my condescending attitude that I express in this video is a little bit obsolete, even if my criticisms of the text that I'm reading are still basically the same. All right. Let's do this. The 
the big objections that I have about the book chapters that we're going to be criticizing have to do with three main issues. First, about the meaning of the term equality. Second, about Graeber and Wengrow's presentation of egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies, and also their presentation of the authors who write about those societies. And the third big issue I have with their work is Graeber and Wengrow's explicit refusal to look at the material context for why certain people organize more hierarchically or organize more equally or organize one way or the other in different seasons throughout the year. Now, I've already talked a lot about how material constraints lead people to organize in an egalitarian or hierarchical manner in episodes 7, 7.1, and 8, and I'll talk about that a bit more next time. So for now, we'll do a quick review of what the term equality means, and then we'll do a quick history of hunter-gatherer studies. The meaning of the word equality in a political context is extremely simple. But like I always talk about, even the most simple and basic concepts are obscured and confused in our political discourse, even at the highest levels of academia and journalism. So, a little refresher course. The word politics refers to everything relating to decision-making in groups. Who gets to decide, who doesn't get to decide, why, how decisions are made, etc. In other words, politics is about who has power and how power is exercised. So when we're talking about equality in the context of politics, and Graeber and Wengrow's book is all about anthropology and history as they relate to politics, we're not talking about people being equal in terms of size or attractiveness or in terms of their abilities. We're talking about equality of decision-making power. Equality means that everyone has an equal say in the decisions that affect them. In other words, democracy. And full political equality implies not just representative democracy, but direct democracy. And equality of power has all sorts of implications. First, it implies a high degree of individual freedom and autonomy. Because if everyone has equal decision-making power, that means that there's no authority figure who has the power to tell anyone what to do. The only time you can't do something is if what you're doing interferes with the autonomy and freedom of the other people involved in the decision-making, and they join together to stop you. Next, equality of power also implies a high degree of economic equality. Our political discourse always separates decision-making involving the state from decision-making in the private sphere. We tend to think of state decision-making as politics and private decision-making as just life. But power is power. And politics is decision-making in any groups, at work, at home, as much as in the halls of parliament or congress. And when there's great economic inequality, that means that there are some people who dominate the resources that other people need to live, which means that the people with those resources have the power to make the people without the resources do what they want all day long in exchange for some food or shelter or some salary. That's how slavery worked. That's how feudalism worked. And that's how capitalism works. That's why your boss tells you what to do all day at work because he owns a revenue-generating business, and you depend on that revenue in order to live. You and Jeff Bezos each have one vote in your political system, if you're a citizen, but Bezos can tell tens of thousands of employees what to do all day, and how to do it, and how fast to do it, and he can literally make them piss and shit in bottles and diapers if that suits him. Meanwhile, the only people that you can boss around is your dog and your kids, because they're economically dependent on you. And wealth inequality also means inequality in terms of government decision-making power as well. You and George Soros or Bill Gates or the Koch brothers or Jeff Bezos, you all have one vote each. But all those zillionaires can afford to hire armies of lobbyists to work 24-7 to teach your representatives what to think and how to think. And they can flood them with electoral campaign contributions to incentivize them to do what they want. And they can pay for all sorts of advertisements and PR that affect what you think you want. Meanwhile, all you can do is vote once every few years. And maybe you can go to a town hall meeting once in a while and ramble about things that you don't really understand very well, and no one will pay much attention to you. Third, equality of decision-making power implies that there are no power hierarchies based on cultural discrimination, on different categories like race, gender, religion because cultural discrimination translates into inequalities of decision-making power. Like in a patriarchal society, men have more power by virtue of their status as men. In a gerontocracy, old people have more power based on their age, etc. So in theory, a truly egalitarian society would be one where there are no authority figures, where men and women are equal, and where there's economic equality. 
And as we'll see, it turns out that this isn't just theoretical. There are actually several societies that approach this type of equality. And one more thing. Keep in mind that whenever we talk about the political left and the political right, that we're talking about hierarchy versus equality. The left refers to those people who support equality in precisely the ways that I described, and the political right refers to those people who support hierarchies of power, which also implies economic inequality and also hierarchies based on gender or age or other cultural categories. So that's equality. Now let's take a look at hunter-gatherer studies and hunter-gatherer societies. First, what's a hunter-gatherer and why does it matter what hunter-gatherers do today or in the past? The definition of hunter-gatherer is sometimes in dispute, but most commonly it's a negative definition. It's a subsistence-level society where the people do not do any agriculture. And that's a broad category that includes all kinds of societies that sometimes have very little in common with each other. Like there are nomadic, super-egalitarian societies with few possessions that follow herds of animals all year round. And there are sedentary territorial fishing societies with chiefs and nobility and slaves and all sorts of other societies in between those extremes. Now, all human societies are interesting from the perspective of politics. And I can't stress enough how if you're interested in politics, you should really be reading all sorts of ethnographies of different societies. But hunter-gatherers are especially interesting in this regard because modern human beings evolved into a species while we were hunter-gatherers. And we spent the first 93 to 97% of our existence as hunter-gatherers, depending on how you count it. So people have a lot invested in how our hunter-gatherer ancestors are and were organized, because there's an implication that if hunter-gatherers do or did things a certain way, that this must be the way that we're best adapted to live. Now, in trying to understand the conditions that we evolved in, we look towards archaeology. But hunter-gatherer societies don't type to leave the types of material remains that last tens of thousands of years, so we also need to make a lot of inferences based on hunter-gatherers that we know about from today or from recent times. And they're presumed, rightly or wrongly, to share many of the same conditions as our ancestors. And then we end up with all of these debates about how much the hunter-gatherers of recent times resemble or don't resemble the hunter-gatherers of Paleolithic times, and how much the conditions that they live in today don't resemble or do resemble those conditions of 20,000 or 200,000 years ago. Until the 1960s, there were all sorts of assumptions about hunter-gatherers among anthropologists, which were based on a mix of common popular misconceptions and also on the work of some famous anthropologists like Alfred Radcliffe Brown and Claude Levi-Strauss, both of whom had worked among the Australian Aborigines in the early 20th century. So, based on all these ideas, it was often assumed that hunter-gatherers were male-dominated societies, where women were basically slaves and baby-makers. It was assumed that hunter-gatherers were made up of bands of closely related males, with unrelated females marrying into the group, and that cooperation was based on advancing the interests of people genetically closest to you, a bit like the Richard Dawkins' selfish genes thesis. It was assumed that hunter-gatherers were fiercely territorial, and that they competed and warred frequently with neighboring groups, and that most of their food came from male hunting. It was assumed that hunter-gatherer life was an eternal, hungry search for food, and a nasty, brutish, and short life, and that the world's remaining hunter-gatherers were the ones who were either too stupid to figure out how awesome efficient agriculture is, or who were unlucky enough to be stuck in those types of territories which were not suited for agriculture. And particularly in the popular imagination, it was assumed that hunter-gatherer societies were ruled by chiefs and priests who told everyone what to do and what to think, and that everyone should be afraid of the powerful and vengeful gods that rule humanity. But then, in 1966, there was the first big conference of hunter-gatherer specialists from cultural anthropology and archaeology called Man the Hunter. And that conference, which established the modern field of hunter-gatherer studies and the research that came after it, completely upended all of these assumptions. It turns out that most hunter-gatherers are usually better nourished and healthier than their farmer neighbors. They usually work less hours and less intensively than farmers do, and the work they do is usually more diverse and more enjoyable. Meanwhile, Archaeological finds show that prehistoric people's health almost invariably got much worse once they switched from hunting and gathering to agriculture. And in many places, the health of the general population never matches or surpasses hunter-gatherer health until the 19th century, except among small urban elites. 
And hunter-gatherers weren't hunter-gatherers because they were too stupid to invent or adopt agriculture, or because they lived in conditions that were too harsh for agriculture. But they purposefully avoid agriculture as an unpleasant and undignified way to live. In terms of gender relations, far from being male-dominated, women in most hunter-gatherer societies tend to have a much higher degree of freedom and autonomy than their farmer or pastoralist sisters, or even than many of their urban sisters. And several hunter-gatherer societies have turned out to be the most gender egalitarian societies that we've ever known, which we'll get back to in a bit. Surprisingly, it turned out that many hunter-gatherer societies are not organized into bands of closely related members, but rather they're organized into bands of largely unrelated members that are always coming and going, kind of like a modern urban neighborhood. And that has all sorts of implications that we'll talk about. It was also remarked that many hunter-gatherer societies are not territorial at all, and that they seem to engage in very little, if any, intergroup warfare. Many hunter-gatherer societies turned out to have no chiefs, no big men, no religious or patriarchal authorities, nor any authorities of any kind. And most hunter-gatherers don't worship their ancestors, and they aren't too concerned with their lineage, and they often have very loose religious beliefs, also kind of like urban people. And it also turned out that many hunter-gatherer societies strictly enforced economic equality via all sorts of interesting methods and institutions. In these societies, men, women, and children alike enjoy a life of material equality and personal freedom that's been considered impossible according to Cold War ideology that's still with us, where freedom and equality are presented as mutually exclusive propositions. In particular, the Kalahari Bushman cultures and the Central African Rainforest Pygmy cultures and the Hadza in Tanzania are described as examples of the type of libertarian communism that socialists have been dreaming of since the 19th century. In terms of political implications of this research, to paraphrase anthropologist Robert Kelly, these societies were not just seen as a model for what our ancestors were like, but also as a model to emulate for our future. Quote, Increasingly dissatisfied, many rejected the mainstream of Western society and searched for an alternative way of life, in which material possessions meant little, people lived in harmony with nature, and there were no national boundaries to contest. It was the context for John Lennon's song Imagine, and for the numerous hippie communes. Hunting and gathering had kept humanity alive for 99% of its history. What could we learn from it? Now, of course, all this stuff was ferociously challenged and debated, because everything should be debated, and also because politics. There are always people out there who are threatened by the idea that men and women can be equal, or that people can be free and equal at the same time. Some people are very attached to misery and war and exploitation, and maybe not coincidentally, the best compilation of these critiques and arguments can be found in the Unabomber's Manifesto, that paragon of joy and happiness. Now, some of these critiques stuck, and some adjustments were made. Hunter-gatherers usually don't work as few hours as originally claimed, and they're often stressed for food, and there are some hidden hints of inequalities here and there. But in general, the picture that I just painted about these societies still stands. It's worth noting that in almost all of the debates that have happened about egalitarian hunter-gatherers over the last 50 years, it's almost always people who haven't lived with these societies who argue that their egalitarianism is an exaggeration, or that it's the result of extreme poverty and circumscription. And it's always the people who know them the best who argue that yes, they are really egalitarian, and they're egalitarian by choice, not because of military defeat or desperation or poverty. In the late 1970s and early 80s, James Woodburn, an anthropologist who did his fieldwork among the Hadza people in Tanzania, noticed that there was one category of hunter-gatherer societies which stood out, not only from all the other hunter-gatherer societies, but also from all other known human societies. These were the super-egalitarian societies that I'd mentioned earlier, where there's no political or religious authority, where men and women are as equal as anywhere on earth, and where personal liberty coexists with strictly enforced economic equality. Quote, Unlike almost all other human societies, people, men, women, and older children alike, are entitled to direct and immediate access to the ungarnered food and other resources of their country. These rights of access are not formally allocated to them and cannot be withdrawn from them. Neither parents nor other kin provide, control, or direct access. These open access rights to material resources are matched by open access to secular knowledge and skills. For members of these societies, one might almost say that the notion of property as theft is not a novel revolutionary ideology, but an implicit, everyday view of the world. Woodburn noticed that without exception, 
all of the societies who had these remarkable egalitarian characteristics practiced the same type of hunting and gathering economy, which also happens to be the most straightforward or simplest type of economy, which means that it also is most likely the type of economy that was practiced by our first ancestors, where people are nomadic, following animal herds around, and more or less acquiring food and then eating it within the next few days without processing it or storing it in any elaborate way. Woodburn called this an immediate return economy, where you produce and consume right away as opposed to the delayed return economies practiced by every other culture in the world, where you produce now and consume later. Starting with his 1982 article, Egalitarian Societies, Woodburn hypothesized about why is it that every single society that's so egalitarian and autonomous happens to practice an immediate return economy. And he points out that inherent to the practical realities of that type of nomadic hunting and gathering is the fact that there's just no real way to dominate anyone. No one can control any particular territory or important resources, so there's no way to force people into the type of dependence relationships that political hierarchies are mostly based on. If anyone does try to monopolize some resources, you can just go somewhere else and get similar resources by yourself. And importantly, since everyone has access to projectile weapons and poisons, if anyone really gets out of line with domineering or antisocial behavior, they can just be killed or exiled, which is a big disincentive to even try. In 1999, Christopher Bohm, in his important book Hierarchy in the Forest, called this reverse dominance, where the majority of people together prevent anyone from becoming dominant over them. And according to Bohm, this has all sorts of evolutionary implications, because our ancestors killed off all the aggressive alpha male types, which led to all sorts of physical and dispositional changes over time in our species. In other words, the balance of power is relatively equal between all members of society. Any person or coalition of people who try to dominate others will inevitably fail. All they can do is cause a bunch of chaos and then eventually get themselves killed. Note that this is not a utopian argument. No one is saying that immediate return foragers are some magical unicorn people who don't have competitiveness or dominance instincts. And no one is saying that they're innocent children who don't know the sins of civilization. It's just that the conditions that they live in, and the institutions that they've developed in order to adapt to those conditions, prevent a lot of the social ills that we take for granted from happening very frequently. Interestingly, game theory studies have shown that people from immediate return hunting and gathering societies sometimes behave more selfishly than people from other societies do when their actions are anonymous and their identities are secret. And that's because they have such strict obligations to share everything on demand in their regular lives. For example, when musicologist Michelle Kislyuk casually gave a slice of tomato to an Aka man sitting next to her, he immediately looked around, counted everyone, and then cut up his little tomato slice into 16 tiny pieces and gave one to every person in sight. So when people who have sharing norms like this get some privacy, they just want to eat the whole damn tomato by themselves. Now, before the Woodburn articles and before Man the Hunter and the subsequent focus on these hyper-egalitarian immediate return societies, the term egalitarian society was often used to describe societies that still had significant elements of hierarchy. For example, the Nuer people, who are traditionally pastoralist people of southern Sudan, were usually described as an egalitarian society because they have no chiefs and because they are egalitarian in terms of there being equal political authority between men. But at the same time, they also have clear gender hierarchy and some wealth inequality. But since the 1980s, when anthropologists, especially hunter-gatherer specialists, are talking about an egalitarian society, they're usually talking about those hyper-egalitarian immediate return hunter-gatherer societies that I've been talking about. Needless to say, these developments in hunter-gatherer studies have had an important impact on leftist politics, at least among those people who know about this stuff. And of course, not enough people do know about this stuff because we wouldn't expect our elite educational or media institutions to be really interested in publicizing that free and equal societies are actually possible or that they actually exist. Many anthropologists who study immediate return societies have left-wing commitments of one sort or another. But ironically, one place on the left of anthropology where you won't find anything at all about these perfectly functional anarcho-communist societies is the one place where you would most expect to find something about them. And that is in the works of the anarchist anthropologist and activist David Graeber. When I was a wee lad in university, I was so excited when I discovered David Graeber, an anarchist anthropologist and activist, like a Noam Chomsky of anthropology. And he was a great and original writer who was writing all sorts of amazing stuff on debt and on manners and on hierarchy. And I couldn't wait to see what he had to say about egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies. 
But if you look through Graeber's bibliography, like I did when I first learned about him, I don't think he mentions a single immediate return society one single time. And I noticed that whenever he did mention a society as being egalitarian, it would never be an actual egalitarian society. It would always be a society with significant forms of hierarchy. So like in Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, there's a short section where he discusses three supposedly egalitarian societies, the Pieroa, the Tiv, and the Malagasy cultures. And he describes a bit about them, and his takeaway is that they aren't really egalitarian. And this is totally true about those particular societies. The Pieroa, which are the most egalitarian of that bunch, have positions of authority that are all dominated by men. The Tiv have very clear patriarchy and gerontocracy. And the Malagasy are not really egalitarian at all. They have all sorts of class and wealth distinctions and cultural hierarchies. The clear implication is that there's no such thing as an actual egalitarian society. There's always a significant form of hierarchy hiding in even the most egalitarian societies. And when I was reading this stuff, I kept wondering, does this guy just not know about immediate return societies? How could he not? And then, in 2015, Graeber and Wengro published Farewell to the Childhood of Man, the first preview of Dawn of Everything, where they argue that humans were always going back and forth from hierarchy to equality from the very beginning of our species. And they claim that the people who describe hunter-gatherers as being egalitarian are actually trying to claim that they're innocent children without agency. And then in 2017, Graeber published On Kings, co-written with Marshall Salins. And in it, Graeber and Salins try to argue that even the most supposedly egalitarian societies have hierarchical religions and cosmologies, where the gods rule the humans who must obey or face their wrath. And they even go as far as to say that the true primordial state of humanity is authoritarianism, not liberty or equality. Quote, Even the so-called egalitarian or acephalous societies, including hunters such as the Inuit or Australian Aboriginals, are in structure and practice cosmic polities, ordered and governed by divinities, the dead, species masters, and other such metapersons endowed with life and death powers over the human population. There are kingly beings in heaven, where there are no chiefs on earth. Although Chewong society is described as classically, quote, egalitarian, it is in practice coercively ruled by a host of cosmic authorities, themselves of human character and metahuman powers. So while on one hand, Howell characterizes the Chewong as having, quote, no social or political hierarchy, unquote, or, quote, leaders of any kind, unquote, on the other, she describes a human community encompassed and dominated by potent metapersons with powers to impose rules and render justice that would be the envy of kings. Basically similar cosmologies are found among basically similar societies. The Central Inuit, Highland New Guineans, Australian Aboriginals, Native Amazonians, and other, quote, egalitarian peoples. The word egalitarian is always in quotes in David Graeber's writing. Likewise dominated by metaperson others who vastly outnumber them. And later on, Graeber alone says, in the first chapter of this volume, Marshall Salins makes the argument that insofar as there is a primordial political state, it is authoritarianism. Most hunter-gatherers actually do see themselves as living under a state-like regime, even under terrifying despots. It's just that since we see their rulers as imaginary creatures, as gods and spirits, and not actual flesh-and-blood rulers, we do not recognize them as, quote, real. But they're real enough for those who live under them. We need to look for the origins of liberty, then, in a primal revolt against such authorities. Now again, not one of the societies discussed in this entire book are immediate return egalitarian societies. All the societies he talks about have some sort of obvious hierarchy right here on Earth. It's like Graeber and Salins were writing in the 1970s, when these societies would have been considered egalitarian, except this was 2017. And what's even more shocking is that what they're saying just isn't true. If you look at the religions of actual egalitarian societies, Central African foragers like the Mbudi, Aka, Efe, and Mbenjele, the bush people of the Kalahari Desert, the Hadza in Tanzania, the Batek in Malaysia, or the Nayaka in the mountainous forests of India, and various societies related to these societies, you'll see that their religions don't fit Graeber and Salin's narrative at all. For example, the Mbudi and the Nayaka. These are two totally unrelated immediate return societies located more than 4,000 miles apart on different continents. They each have a religion which has very similar aspects to it. 
they see their respective forests as a generous, genderless, loving mother-father deity who provides everything for their children. Far from quaking in fear of this forest god, Turnbull tells the story of one Mbuti man who is literally having sex with the forest because he loved it so much. And the forest never tells anyone what to do besides just respect and maintain the forest. Don't overhunt the animals. Don't use up more than you can replenish. Basic common sense advice if you live in a forest. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Hadza have been argued to not have any religion at all, which I don't think is correct, but they certainly don't have any gods that they take very seriously. If you ask a Hadza person what happens after you die, they'll say stuff like, we bury you and people cry. And if you keep pushing them, they're going to say something like, well, maybe you go to the sun. We don't really know. They see their gods as legends and stories, not at all as any sort of authoritarian figures. It's very modern in a weird way, which I don't think is a coincidence, and we'll talk about it another time. I'll link to an article about the Hadza religion, and also to a recent video by some safari bro dude who asks some Hadza hunters philosophical questions, and then in response he just gets the most material, unreligious, unphilosophical answers that you can imagine. Meanwhile, the Kalahari bush people have a trickster type of god that they often complain about, but again, it never tells them what to do. It just causes random bad luck, which they resent. And far from a hierarchical relationship to this god, they see themselves as equals to it, as they do to all their deities. And I'll link to a video of Helga Vierich telling a funny story about this, where the Kalahari bush people tell stories about this god like he's some sort of Mr. Magoo character, getting himself into all sorts of foibles and goofs. Now, you can certainly make the argument that there's no such thing as a truly egalitarian society, and that all societies have some elements of hierarchy to them. But if you're going to make that argument, properly and honestly, you would take the most egalitarian societies that we know of, and then you'd try to point out the inequalities of wealth and power and ideology that exist there. And there are some arguable signs of potential inequalities worth looking into and debating about in immediate return hunter-gatherer societies. And several anthropologists have done just that. But not David Graeber. He's always acted like these societies never existed, and that the 50 years of literature about these societies has never been produced. What he does is the equivalent of arguing that there are no countries on earth where men and women have equal legal rights, and then citing Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, 17th century France, and the Old Testament as proof. It's like he's counting on the fact that his readers don't know anything about immediate return societies so that he can push his narrative. Now the big question here is why? Why would a left-wing anarchist anthropologist with commitments to all sorts of legitimate and serious left-wing causes and organizations want to pretend that the most anarcho-communist societies ever known do not exist? And why would he sign off on the idea that the true primordial state of humanity is authoritarianism? And how is it that the Unabomber has literally done a more thorough and honest job of arguing that egalitarian societies don't exist than David Graeber has? I'll answer these questions in the next episode, but now we finally have the background that we need in order to be able to intelligently judge the conclusion of the Wisdom of Kandi Arunk chapter that we glossed over last time. So let's get to it, and let the cartoon begin. So the entire conclusion of the Wisdom of Kandi Arunk chapter is basically a call for rejecting the whole idea of equality. Quote, Liberté, égalité, fraternité were the rallying cries of the French Revolution. Today, there are whole disciplines, sub-branches of philosophy and political science and legal studies, which make equality their raw material. Equality is almost universally recognized as a value, despite the almost total absence of consensus on what the term actually refers to. Equality of opportunity, equality of condition, formal equality before the law, well, if Graeber, R.A.P., and Wengrow had only listened to this podcast, they would know that equality refers to equality of decision-making power. They continue. Similarly, societies such as the Mi'kmaq, Algonquin, or 17th century Wandat are regularly referred to as, quote, egalitarian societies, or alternately, quote, bands, or, quote, tribal societies, which are generally assumed to mean the same thing. Oof. So there's two major problems in this one little sentence. As always, Graeber is ignoring the most egalitarian societies and then focusing on societies that have clear signs of hierarchy in order to argue that equality doesn't exist. So the Mi'kmaq, Algonquin, or 17th century Wandat would have been referred to as egalitarian societies before the 1970s, but not anymore. 
And to be clear, you will still sometimes see people referring to societies like these as egalitarian if they're comparing them to our society or to some other hierarchical society that neighbors the society in question. But Graeber and Wengro should know better. The Mi'kmaq, for example, have a degree of patriarchy, and the Algonquin and Wandat had a degree of political hierarchy all beyond what you would find in these actually egalitarian immediate return societies. Now, the next part of the sentence really surprises me. Bands and tribal societies are assumed to mean the same thing? Maybe by Homer Simpson or Fred Flintstone, but no anthropologist thinks this. A band is a group of people who travel around together, like a rock band. Membership in a band is determined by who's present when you're counting. If you're not present, then you're not part of the band. Most, but not all, hunter-gatherers are organized into bands, and the membership of those bands is usually pretty fluid. People are coming and going all the time, visiting friends and relatives, getting away from their enemies or from their spouses, and as a result, bands are most often made up of largely unrelated people, which has interesting evolutionary implications, which we'll talk about another time. A tribe, on the other hand, is an entirely different shebang. A tribe is a descent group. You're born into a tribe. If you go off and live somewhere else, you're still part of your tribe. A larger tribe is usually made up of clans, which are made up of lineages, which are made up of nuclear families, which is why in more recent times, anthropologists will refer to tribal societies as segmented lineage societies, because each unit is made up of larger lineage segments, and because the word tribe has a bit of a confused definition, because colonial governments used to invent tribes in order to make it easier to govern people, and those tribes didn't have any organic structure or existence or history. Tribal membership, like clan membership or lineage membership, will be determined by who your father is in a patrilineal society or who your mother is in a matrilineal society. So membership purposefully excludes half of your relatives. Ordinary people like Fred Flintstone and Homer Simpson will often erroneously use the word tribe to mean an ethnic group, people who have the same language and general culture. But one ethnic group can have multiple tribes. Think of the 12 tribes of ancient Israel or the current various tribes of Afghans or of Kurds. Now, the whole reason that a traditional tribal system exists is because it's a way of dealing with collective property. If your subsistence depends on a particular fishing territory, or a farming territory, or a herd of animals that you own, then a descent group, like a clan or tribe, is a way to have clear ownership rules, and to have a group that can collectively defend the territory or the property. So if you see a tribal system of organization, you know that the society has collective property to manage, whether it's a hunting territory like the Mi'kmaq, or a farming territory like the Huron, or a fishing territory like the Tlingit, or a herd of animals like the Nuer. An anthropologist not knowing the difference between a tribe and a band is like an architect not knowing the difference between a house and an apartment building. It's ridiculous. But back to Graeber and Wengro. It is never clear what the term equality is supposed to refer to. Is it an ideology? The belief that everyone should be the same? Obviously not in all ways, but in some ways that are considered particularly important? Or should it be a situation in which people really are the same? And if the latter, should it mean that an egalitarian ideal that characterizes this particular society is in fact largely realized, if all members of society can be said to have equal access to land, or to treat each other with equal dignity, or to be equally free to make their opinions known in public assemblies? Or can it be a measure imposed by the observer, monetary income, political power, caloric intake, size of house, number and quality of personal possessions. I bet that if Graeber and Wengro had spent like 20% of the energy that it took to think up all these goofy examples, and if they put that energy in trying to think about what equality should mean if you want to have a coherent politics, especially a coherent left politics, they would have easily figured out that it means equality of power. Point final. And they continue. Would equality mean erasure of the individual or the celebration of the individual? After all, a society in which everyone was exactly the same, and one where everyone was so different that there was no criterion for saying that one was superior to the other, would both seem egalitarian to an outside observer. Well, if you know that equality means equal power, then you can figure out pretty easily that it implies the celebration of the individual. Because no matter who you are, how big or how small, how ugly or good-looking, strong or weak, or how much or how little you contribute to society, you matter. Your say matters as much as everyone else does. And when we look at immediate return societies, this is pretty much what we see. You can be weird, you can contradict gender norms, you can be ugly, you can be gay, and people don't judge you for it. People are only judged negatively insofar as they disrupt, disturb, or threaten the equal power of everyone else. And the authors continue. Can we talk about equality in a society where the elders are treated as gods and make all the important decisions if everyone in that society who survives past, say, 50 years old becomes an elder? 
No, you can't, because that's not equality. That's a weird kind of gerontocracy that, as far as I know, does not exist anywhere on Earth. And they go on. What about gender relations? Many so-called, quote, egalitarian societies are really only egalitarian between adult men. Sometimes the relationships between men and women in these societies are anything but equal. Yes, that's exactly right. If you're writing this from the 1970s. That's why we usually don't call patriarchal societies egalitarian anymore, unless we're comparing them to much more hierarchical societies. Today, you'd call a patriarchal society like that that's equal between men, you'd call that a male egalitarian society. Left-wing anthropologists should know this. And they go on. Other cases are more ambiguous. It may be that men and women in a given society not only do different jobs, but they have different theories of what is important, so that they both tend to think that the other's main concerns, cooking, hunting, childcare, war, are insignificant, or so profoundly different that it makes no sense to compare them at all. Many of the societies encountered by the French in North America fit this description. They may be considered matriarchal from one point of view, patriarchal from another. In such cases, can we even speak of equality between the sexes? So, if Graeber and Wengro knew anything about hunter-gatherers, I would think that maybe this was a reference to some debates that were had in the aftermath of Man the Hunter, and that you still have sometimes today, where some people argue that the very fact that there are gender roles in immediate return hunting and gather societies is proof of male dominance. Hunter-gatherer experts usually reply that, yes, there are gender roles, but they're not enforced or policed in any way. Men regularly do women's work, women regularly do men's work when it suits them or if they want to, and a lot of time they just don't want to because they don't tend to find it interesting. And then you can see in the video that I post from Helga Vierich, she talks specifically about this, and it's pretty interesting. And then the part where they talk about societies that seem patriarchal from one angle and matriarchal from the other, that's probably a reference to societies like the Haudenosaunee in North America, where women monopolized all of the positions of authority at the local level, but it's only men who got to vote on broad public affairs beyond the clan level. And then the chief of the tribe was always a man, though he was elected exclusively by the female clan mothers, who can always recall him. Now, you can have legitimate debates on whether societies like the Haudenosaunee are gender egalitarian or not, but they're not egalitarian societies writ large, at least not to the level of immediate return hunter-gatherer societies, because you do have positions of authority to begin with. Clan mother, chief, head of the household, gerontocracy, and Graeber and Wingro continue. Or could we speak of equality in the sense that men and women were equal according to some minimal external criteria? To be equally free from the threat of domestic violence, for example? Or to have equal access to resources? Or to have a say in common affairs? Equal say in common affairs, hello, I'm right here. Interestingly, I think it's Frank Marlowe who talks about the Aka foragers, and he says that he's never seen an Aka man hit an Aka woman, like never hit his wife, but he's seen an Aka woman hit her husband a bunch of times. But regardless... I can't help but notice that Graeber and Wengro say equal when it comes to equal access to resources, and they say equal when it comes to the threat of domestic violence, but they can't seem to bring themselves to say the word equal when it comes to an equal say in common affairs, which is the definition of political equality. Let's go on with the text. Since there is no clear and generally accepted answer to any of these questions, the use of the term, quote, equal has led to endless arguments. In fact, it is still unclear what the term, quote, egalitarian means. Let me just interject here again, because I want to point out how completely insane it is that we live in a society where a left-wing, anarchist political activist with proper bona fides, like David Graeber, does not know what egalitarian means, especially when commitment to equality is literally the defining feature of the left. This is a testament to how impoverished and confused our political theory is, and how important it is to do what I'm trying to do in this series, cleaning up the definitions of political terms, rebuilding our political alphabet from the ground up. And before all of you Marxists out there get super smug about how these foolish anarchists don't know any theory, David Graeber was in very good company. Good old Papa Smurf himself, Karl Marx, and MC Freddie Engels actually made similar arguments back in their day. But they had a bit of a better excuse. In Marx's day, the word equality was most often used to describe procedural equality, meaning equality before the law, where the same rules apply to you if you're from the nobility, or from the bourgeoisie, or if you're a farmer or a laborer, as opposed to before the French Revolution, where separate rules apply to the different orders of society. And on the left liberal side, equality was most often used to describe universal male suffrage in a capitalist economy, where every man gets an equal vote, even though the wealthy still have all the power via owning the means of production and funding the political system. 
So Marx didn't like the term equality because he wanted to make sure that the focus was on the abolition of classes instead of on procedural equality. But if you watch this podcast where political terms get proper definitions and where political theory actually makes some sense, you know that actual equality clearly implies the abolition of classes because wealth is power. For his part, Engels must have been listening to my podcast because he does use the word equality correctly. He makes the same criticisms as Marx, but he would talk about the difference between real equality as opposed to bourgeois equality. So back to Graeber and Wengrotz. Ultimately, the term equality is not used because it has positive substance, but rather for the same reason that 16th century natural law theorists speculated about equality in the state of nature. The term equality, quote-unquote, is a default term, referring to that kind of protoplasmic mass of humanity that is imagined to be left over when all the trappings of civilization are stripped away. The, quote, egalitarian people are those who have no princes, judges, overseers, or hereditary priests, and are generally without cities or scriptures. They are societies of equals only in the sense that all the most obvious signs of inequality are missing. So, what they're doing here is they're saying that like Rousseau's vision of equality, like we saw in the last episode, that his vision of equality was two-dimensional because it's just not anything real. It's a caricature. Or Marx talks about a future where everyone's free and equal, but he never elaborates or goes into any detail because at the end of the day, equality isn't really real. We're never really supposed to get there. And this is some straight-up bullshit, and it should be embarrassing to the authors. If, unlike Rayburn Wengro, you take the time to read any actual ethnographies or articles by people who have spent time with real egalitarian societies, you'll see that writers constantly talk about how proactive and deliberate their egalitarianism is. You can read endless anecdotes and quantitative studies on how thoroughly demand sharing is enforced. Again, think of that man cutting a tomato slice into 16 tiny pieces to give one to everyone in sight, because if he didn't do that, he would get in huge social trouble. There's the famous story about shaming the meat that I talked about in episode 6 among the Kalahari people. Or more recently, Jerome Lewis talks about Benasongo, a very excellent hunter among the Mbenjele, who was run out of his local area by the women's organization because he refused to stop boasting about his skills. And they did this despite the fact that he brought home an enormous amount of meat, which was obviously to everyone's material advantage. And these are people who prize meat above all foods. And again, I'll link to the article in the notes. The commitment to equality is so strict that when Hadza, for example, have disputes that need mediation, they have to go get someone from one of the neighboring non-Hadza communities to do the mediation because the idea that a fellow Hadza can sit above the others to arbitrate or mediate is seen as unacceptable. And the authors go on. It follows that any historical work that purports to investigate the origins of social inequality is in reality an investigation into the origins of civilization. A work that in turn implies a vision of history that, like Turgot's, conceives of civilization as a system of social complexity that guarantees greater overall prosperity, but at the same time guarantees that certain compromises will necessarily have to be made in the area of freedoms and rights. We are trying to tell a different story. Again, this is incredibly insulting. And this paragraph has two big false or foolish statements. First of all, investigating the origins of hierarchy is not inherently about civilization. It's about the origins of hierarchy. Why do men dominate women in so many societies? Why is there so much racism? Why do religious groups dominate and exclude and kill each other? Why does slavery happen? All of these things happened thousands of years before civilization ever developed. Is this part of our nature? Is this circumstance? Is there anything we can do about it? If anything, an inquiry into the origins of hierarchy is about human nature and about the future, our future. Next, and this is the truly obnoxious part, Graeber and Wengro are saying that anyone investigating the origins of hierarchy is ultimately arguing that hierarchies and inequalities are the necessary price of the blessings of civilization. So anyone looking into the origin of hierarchy is trying to justify hierarchy on some level. This is an insult to 50 years of hunter-gatherer studies. Yes, you can find some authors doing this. I think Francis Fukuyama maybe is the only one I can think of. Maybe there are others, all of whom are non-experts. But most of the people interested in the origins of hierarchy, especially if they're deep into hunter-gatherer studies, are interested precisely because they're interested in how we can get rid of hierarchies. How do our hunter-gatherer brothers and sisters live without hierarchy? What lessons can we learn from them to be applied to industrial civilization? Ironically, in an introduction to a new edition of Kropotkin's Mutual Aid, David Graeber quotes Kropotkin, saying, quote, 
radical scholars are bound to enter a minute analysis of the thousands of facts and faint indications accidentally preserved in the relics of the past, to interpret them with the aid of contemporary ethnology, and after having heard so much about what used to divide men, to reconstruct stone by stone the institutions which used to unite them. The only viable alternative to capitalist barbarism is stateless socialism, a product, as the great geographer never ceased to remind us, of tendencies that are apparent now in society and that were always, in some sense, imminent in the present. Yes, but this is exactly what Graver and Wengro are throwing out the window in this crazy Dawn of Humanity book. You have all of this literature about all of these stateless socialist societies, which can teach us so much about where equality comes from, and about how we can create an order that preserves both equality and liberty at the same time, just like our brothers and sisters in the hunter-gatherer world do and our ancestors did. But instead, Graeber and Wengro are intent on pretending that these societies don't exist, and that the literature about them is actually some kind of conspiracy to justify the hierarchies of our day. And they continue... It is not that we consider it unimportant or uninteresting that princes, judges, overseers, or hereditary priests, or for that matter writing in cities, emerged only at some point in human history. On the contrary, to understand our present predicament as a species, it is absolutely crucial to understand how these things came about. However, we also insist that, to do so, we must reject the idea of treating our distant ancestors as some kind of primordial human soup. Now, to say that all of the anthropologists who have been doing so much amazing and important writing and research about immediate return hunting and gathering societies are treating those people as primordial human soup is a complete insult to those authors. It's also a complete insult to those people that they're writing about. And it's also a complete insult to the intelligence of all the people who have ever read those works and realized that what they're reading now is a load of crap. And I urge you to read that stuff, not just to dispute Graeber and Wengro, but so you can see for yourself how human beings like you and I, with all of our shitty flaws and our selfishness and our weaknesses and our pettiness and our stupidities, how people like you and I can nonetheless manage to live in and maintain a free and egalitarian order, not in utopia, not on Star Trek, but in this world, this world full of injustice and brutality, so much of which simply does not need to exist and which does not exist in many societies. They have a lot of other problems, but not a lot of the stupid exploitation and everything that flows from it that we deal with every day. Back to Graeber and Wengro. Accumulating evidence from archaeology, anthropology, and related fields suggests that, like the Native Americans or the 18th century French, our distant ancestors had very specific ideas about what was important in their societies, that these varied considerably over the 30,000 years or so between the beginning of the Ice Age and the dawn of civilization that we call home, and that describing them in terms of uniform, quote, egalitarianism tells us almost nothing about them. This is a meaningless straw man statement. No anthropologist in recent times ever said anything like, oh, people used to only believe in egalitarianism, and then when civilization showed up, all of a sudden they started developing more thoughts and feelings and ideas. First of all, society started switching away from egalitarianism long before civilization. Though by Graeber and Wengro's definition, if you run around in a grass skirt and there's no state, then that means you're an egalitarian, which is probably why they think the term doesn't mean anything in the first place. Secondly, if you read the hunter-gatherer literature, you'll see that these are complex people with emotions and conflicts and jealousies and everything that we have, except their worst emotions and impulses tend to be held in check in ways that we fail to do in our societies, and it's worth looking into why and how. Back to Graeber and Wengro. There is no doubt that there was generally some degree of equality by default, a presumption that humans are all equally powerless against the gods, or a strong sense that no one's will should be permanently subordinated to another's. This would probably have been necessary to ensure that hereditary princes, judges, overseers, or priests did not appear for such a long time. No, not equally powerless against the gods. That is not a feature of our most egalitarian societies, despite what Graeber and Wengro and Marshall Salins, for some reason, want us to believe. But yes, a strong sense that no one's will should be subordinated to another's. That is the essence of egalitarianism, and it's also a core feature of egalitarian societies. And it also happens to be the core principle of the left, and of anarchism in particular, which makes it even more ridiculous that Graeber is doing his best to deny it. But, back to the book. Self-conscious ideologies of equality, quote-unquote, 
that is, those that present equality as an explicit value, as opposed to an ideology of freedom, dignity, or participation that applies equally to all, seem to have been relatively recent in history. Again, you need to be ignorant of 50 years of hunter-gatherer research to think this. Also, equality implies freedom, dignity, and participation that applies equally to all. And there's no reason to think that the Kalahari Bushmen or the Central African Forest Pygmies or the Hadza made this stuff up recently in history. And to say that the Europeans made this stuff up in the 18th century is just obnoxious. And they continue. Even when they do emerge, these ideologies rarely apply to everyone. The ancient Athenian democracy, for example, was based on political equality among its citizens, even if they represented only 10 to 20% of the total population, in the sense that everyone had equal rights to participate in public discussions. We are taught to see this as a milestone in political evolution, as we consider that this older notion of equal civic participation was revived and expanded some 2,000 years later at the time of the French and American revolutions. This is a dubious proposition. The political systems referred to as, quote, democracies in 19th century Europe have almost nothing to do with ancient Athens, but that is not really the point. Athenian intellectuals of the time, who were mostly of aristocratic origin, tended to regard the whole arrangement as a sordid affair, and much preferred the government of Sparta, which was run by an even smaller percentage of the total population, who lived collectively off the labors of the serfs, and the Spartan citizens referred to themselves as the homoyoyoi, which could be translated as the equals, or those who are all the same. They all underwent the same rigorous military training. They adopted the same haughty disdain for both effeminate luxury and individual idiosyncrasies. They ate in communal halls and spent most of their lives practicing warfare. Again, this is all really interesting, and it's a great critique of the use of the word egalitarian in the 1970s and before, but the fact that they're saying this stuff now, while ignoring 50 years of hunter-gatherer research in order to discredit the idea of egalitarianism, is completely insane, coming from two left-wing anthropologists. And the dynamics of societies like ancient Athens or Sparta, where you have a community of equals ruling over others, is super interesting, and we'll talk about that in the future. But back to the end of this chapter. So, this is not a book about the origins of inequality. What? Well then, what the hell is this book about? They just punted on one of the biggest questions of all humanity. Like, my homework is dumb, so I'm not going to do my homework. And we'll see next time that they're going to end up arguing that humans have always been shifting between hierarchy and equality, even though equality doesn't actually exist. But then something causes us to have more inequality, even though equality doesn't really exist. But somehow equality does exist for Graeber and Wengrow when they start talking about egalitarian cities and civilizations, which is actually the good part of the Dawn of Humanity book, and I strongly recommend that you read it. But back to Graeber and Wengrow. But this book does aim to answer many of the same questions in a different way. There is no doubt that something has gone terribly wrong in the world. A very small percentage of its population controls the destiny of almost everyone else, and it is behaving in increasingly disastrous ways. To understand how this situation came about, we have to go back to what made possible the emergence of kings, priests, overseers, and judges. But we no longer have the luxury of assuming that we already know exactly what that was. Drawing on indigenous critics like Kandia Ronk, we must approach the historical, archaeological, and ethnographic record with fresh eyes. More like fresh eye rolls. <laughs> yes, we actually do know more or less how this situation came about. It came about because conditions on Earth changed over time, such that some people were able to dominate others in ways that hadn't been possible before. And we'll talk about that next time. And in the meantime, please tell other people about this show. It's really, really hard to get the word out in this algorithm-ruled, super-saturated podcast landscape, especially for a show that doesn't have a ready-made teenage sectarian political niche. So spread the word and share the episodes. Speaking of which, I want to give a special thank you and shout-out to St. Andrew, not the Apostle of Jesus, but the YouTubesman of Trinidad, who posted one of my episodes on his channel and on his tweeters. And I've gotten more views and subscribers and great comments and questions than I've ever had in such a short period of time, thanks to that post. So, thank you very much. And I checked out St. Andrew's videos, and they're really great, dealing with a lot of the same questions that I'm dealing with. So, check out his channel. It's called St. Andrewism. And also, a shout-out to Tom O'Brien, host of Alpha to Omega, for hooking me up with Camilla Power and Chris Knight. And it's one of my favorite podcasts. Check out the Fundamental Principles book series, which is super exciting. A uh, previously forgotten important book of socialist theory. And also thanks to Lucky Black Cat, 
another great YouTuber who's always been supportive of me and of this channel. And check out Arnold Schroeder's Fight Like an Animal podcast. It is just maybe the best political podcast out there. Just check it out. You will thank me. And please like and subscribe and review this show on iTunes or Apple Music. It's really important, and it really helps the show pop up more readily on searches. And please, if you can, subscribe to my Patreon so I can keep doing this, because it takes an unbelievable amount of time and frustration and the economic sacrifices that I've had to make to keep doing this, never mind all the time and social sacrifices, are completely insane. And until next time, see ya!